Hello everyone, this is Yoni and you're listening to a new episode of Lenishix Radio. I'm your host for today and with me here is Robbie. Hey hey. And today we'll be joined by Benedict Kern for an episode about Fortress Europe. In other words, we'll be talking about the new legislation projects, approaches, mentalities and uh, all the things that are being discussed over the last few, well, years practically, but which are accelerating now towards this new European-wide change in legislation with regards to immigrants, asylum seekers, and basically all non-EU people who wish to seek uh, asylum or refuge in Europe. And also Benedict will talk a little bit about uh, the kind of political work he and his organization are doing, which is uh, organizing citizen asylums and church asylums, which are basically churches and people offering asylum, quote-unquote, in their own homes or their spaces, so that the police don't find you know, migrants who are trying to avoid the Dublin process in Germany. It's a heavy, loaded discussion, but uh, like Robbie mentioned, it ends with us discussing calls to direct action and ways of getting organized. So uh, we hope you'll find it uh, interesting and will want to get involved. Listen to them. <laughs> Children of the night, what music they make. Thanks for accepting our invitation, uh, Benedict. It's nice to have you here with us. Before we begin, could you please tell us a few words about yourself and the various groups and projects of which you are part? Yeah, thanks for your invitation. My name is Benedict. I'm living in Münster in Western Germany, and I'm working here in the Institute for Theology and Politics. And in this institute, I'm working about church asylum. So we try to support refugees without um, legal status to come in churches, in church parishes, to be welcomed there in the situation when they should be deported. So we try to protect them in churches because in Germany, police normally doesn't enter churches to take people out to deport them. And yeah, we try to bring people in these uh, safe spaces to be there. And um, I'm here responsible for our national state of Nordrhein-Westfalen. And so for the moment, I'm working for 140 different church asylums. This is one part of what we are doing. And the other part is that we also try to make the link to other groups and activist people who started what is called citizen asylum here in Germany, Bürgerinnenasyl. So that means that people take refugees in their home if they are in the situation of a deportation or if they are illegal and to protect them in their own home. It's not a legal practice, but it's necessary because we have so many deportations here from Germany. And because of that, we try to do this in the churches and also in the private rooms to support people to be protected in their situation of deportation. Maybe you can tell us a few words about the general situation with asylum and deportations in Germany, because we often read mostly the English-speaking press and we hear about deportation situations like in the UK and the USA. But of course, uh, Germany is more or less less known for the role it played during the Syrian refugee crisis and now the Ukrainian refugee crisis and so forth. So. How common are these deportations? What are the tactics? Uh, yeah, whatever you think would be relevant as a brief discussion before we move to the main point. So in Germany, we have every year more or less 20,000 deportations. Most of these deportations are Dublin deportations. That means that people are deported to their country where they entered to Europe. So... Mostly the countries at the 
European border, so in Eastern and Southern Europe. And mostly people in these countries are in a very bad situation because of the social system there and the situation of refugees in these countries. So most of these deportations here in Germany are these deportations to the other Dublin countries. But there are also deportations in the home countries of refugees. So we have a lot of deportations, for example, at the moment to Pakistan. Before the crisis in Afghanistan, when the NATO went out of Afghanistan, there were also a lot of deportations to Afghanistan. For the moment, it stopped, but yeah, we will see, I think, in the future, they will restart to deport also to Afghanistan. And to a lot of African countries, Germany is deporting people, for example, for the Maghrebian countries in the northern Africa, but also in western and southern Africa. And mostly people who are here for five, six, seven years, they try to find a perspective here. For example, if they have the possibility to work, then they could be protected. But in a lot of cases, there are also deportations to their home countries in all these cases. So yeah, 20,000 deportations every year. And here in my region in Germany, it's called Nordrhein-Westfalen. Here we have more or less eight, 7,000 uh, deportations every year. Because here we have a very strict rules for deportations. So that means that people mostly are accommodated in camps, in big camps. So it's very easy for um, the government here to take people out of these camps to deport them. We have two centers here in Nordrhein-Westfalen. That means that people can be there in jail for some weeks. And during this time, in these closed camps, people cannot go out. And then the authorities have much more time to organize the deportations than about the airport of Düsseldorf, mostly. That's the biggest airport here. And then they are organizing every month charter deportations. So one aeroplane for Pakistan, for example, is going every two weeks from here, but also to other countries. I think we have mostly everyday uh, deportations here about this airport. So it's very hard to fight against this practice because here for the government and most of the people who are living here, deportations are a very bureaucratical practice. That means that there is no scandal about it. And so we are trying to talk about these problems of deportations because, uh, yeah, sure, um, every deportation destroys fundamental rights. And we try to make a public view on it. And on the other hand, we also try to protect people in this situation and to find ways out of this deportation situation. You mentioned these deportations, and indeed, Dusseldorf is a really big airport. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people are there passing through it every day. How does this look like so you can get an idea? Is it like you have a armed convoy that takes people then and puts them on top of a plane like we would imagine? Or is it more cold and bureaucratical? You simply receive a paper with a deadline, your plane ticket, you go there and you return to your home country or else. How do these deportations look like in practice? Yeah, so in practice, normally people receive a letter. So the decision about their asylum status. So in all of these Dublin cases, in this letter is written that there will be no asylum process here in Germany because another country is responsible for the asylum process. For example, Poland, Bulgaria, Croatia, Romania, Spain. These are countries where the most deportations go on. And if people receive this letter, then they can make an appeal at the court. And in, I think, 80% of all these cases are negative. So the appeals uh, are negative. And then the deportation can start. So normally the day of deportation is not announced to the people. So they are in a situation of waiting <laughs> 
for the deportation. So they don't know when it starts exactly. So in all these cases, a lot of people are very hard stressed. They have psychological problems. They are in a very, very bad situation. And it's very difficult to organize solidarity in these situations because mostly people cannot construct for themselves another perspective than to wait for their deportation. Yeah, and then one day, police is coming normally by night. They come between three and six o'clock in the morning. And in the camps, they make controls in different rooms where people could be. And then they take them out. They bring them, in a lot of cases, directly to the airport. Or in other cases where the deportation isn't organized yet, then they bring them in these deportation centers where people are in jail and then they have to wait that their deportation is be organized. So people who are sick, for example, in these cases, there are doctors flying with them in the aeroplane. It's very crazy if a doctor can confirm that somebody can enter into an aeroplane, then the deportation can start. In those cases, when people are not in this condition to travel or to be for a longer time in an aeroplane, then deportations are stopped. But normally, they get this confirmation and then a doctor can be with them to support them during the travel. It's a very scenic practice in my point of view. I don't know the number, but a lot of deportations also are stopped because people are making struggle. They resist when they have to enter the aeroplane. And sometimes the pilots of the aeroplanes refuse to take these people because normally it's in the normal flight business. So there are normal people <laughs> In, in the aeroplane and then they don't want to have this scandal that there's one person forced by police officers to enter an aeroplane and then sometimes pilots decides that people can enter the aeroplane and then in these cases deportations are stopped and then the next day or some hours later they have to take another aeroplane. In all these cases we try to help people or to motivate them to be resistant at this moment of deportation because then they can have some more perspectives than if they are calm <laughs> in this situation. So it would be good if people should be deported uh, that they make trouble in the airplane. Yeah, we should touch on this for sure when we discuss resistance, but also a bit more in the bureaucratical part of the questions. In a few previous episodes, we discussed a lot how current international legislation does not allow you to argue that economic conditions in your country are the reason why you seek asylum. And this is often used against workers from the Republic of Moldavia, from Ukraine before the war. So from these countries, I think Tagesh Spiegel wrote an article a few years back on this. We'll probably link it. Is this common with the people that you mentioned or are the people who are refused on because they seek asylum on economic grounds only a minority of the giant number of deportations you mentioned earlier? Yeah, sure. A lot of deportations to a lot of countries, Albania, Serbia, other countries, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, Egypt. In all these cases, normally the decision of the asylum office here in Germany, they say in all these cases, there are only economical reasons for their asylum. And so they have to decide it negative because in Germany, you only can receive an asylum status if you are in situation of political resistance in your country. But if German government has a good uh, relationship to your own government, then there, there is really no chance to get an asylum by this political reasons. So in a lot of cases, they decide also if people are political active there and if they have problems there. But in a lot of cases, they say here, for example, in India or Pakistan, so these countries have a very good relationship to Germany. And then the government here says, no, it's not possible that you are in opposition in this country and that you have problems because of your oppositional politics there. So there are only economical reasons and we have to deport you back. So normally this is the argumentation. 
And it's very, very hard at the court if you make an appeal to convince a court that there are also other reasons and not only the economical and in our point of view also economical reasons are good reasons to leave your country and to go in another country where you can see more perspective for yourself that's sure but this argumentation is not effective if you are here in the asylum procedure so we're recording this uh, episode shortly after the tragedy in Greece where hundreds of people uh, seeking asylum lost their lives. At the same time, uh, this tragedy happened after one protest in Germany and before the next one, a pretty big protest, which unfortunately, in my opinion, was not that visible in the mainstream press. And people were... Um, protesting Germany's decision to rewrite some of the asylum laws. Can you tell us a bit about the legal implications, the political conditions and these uh, protests that took place in June? Yeah. So first, in Greece, it's not a tragedy. <laughs> it's a deliberate, provoked situation in the Mediterranean Sea. I think it's important to say that the EU states provoke these situations of a lot of deaths in the Mediterranean. It's not a tragedy. It's provoked and it's the consequence of our European asylum politics. And it's the only consequence which is in the mind also of all these people in the EU who manage the migration to Europe. I think this point is very, very important to underline. Yeah. So I think in Europe, we have the problem since 10 years, the different European countries are discussing an asylum system for Europe. And there are very different kinds of interests in Europe. These interests are on the ideological, on the political and on the economical level. So there is now common perspective in Europe. You have the German perspective, which is Germany is a country with a very effective economic uh, situation, so um, with a good prosperity. So we have to protect this prosperity. So we need some people who are working here in Germany for less money, so for jobs which are not very good paid. So for this, refugees are very welcomed. So in this neoliberal logic, people are welcomed here to make all these work. But if there are too much of these people without a good professional formation, then there's a problem. So we have a migration regime in Germany, which is very neoliberal. So also in 2015, it was not only for humanitarian reasons that the government opened the German borders that Syrian people could come to Germany. It was really a situation of where the economy in Germany needs to have new human capital. And this plays a very, very big role for German economy. So because of that, the perspective for the German government in Europe is we need to build up a fortress Europe, but also we need that some people can come here because they are useful for our economy. Other European countries, they don't have this perspective. In other countries, there's a very big problem. Lots of people have no work of their own people, and so they don't need so much migrant people for worst labor. <laughs> oh, I don't know how to describe it. And so in these countries, there is not this strategy to have a, an open border or semi-open border, a half open border for human capital, because they have a lot of human capital by their own citizens or citizens of the neighbor countries. So in Eastern Europe, I think this is an important topic. And these different interests in Europe, they provoked in the last 10 years that there was really no decision on the EU level about a common asylum system in Europe. And now with this decision of 15 June, I think the governments took a decision which is a very hard decision for a European asylum system because they tried now to find an equilibrity between 
at these different interests. So the interests of the countries at the European border, so that they don't have to take so many refugees in the Dublin system if people go to France, to Germany, to Scandinavian countries, and that they will be sent back to the European border countries. So there's not this interest to have this Dublin system. But this is the interest of the Northern European countries. So the consequence is on 15 June, they decided that they want to create camps out of Europe to less more space or more capacities for the border countries in Europe. And also for Germany, it's important that they can say, yes, we'll do the asylum procedure outside of the European border. And then we can decide who can come here, who can be economical, useful <laughs> in our point of view, how much human capital does we need. And so we can take all these decisions, but people are outside of our country and outside of Europe. I think this is a very, very difficult situation in Europe where we are now. I think in the future we have to, to organize a lot of struggles about it because I think it will be very, very, very difficult and hard in Europe to create justice for refugee people. Do you know more concretely what is the plan? Where will the camps be located? They have a list of so-called safe countries of origin. Tunisia, Serbia, and other countries are safe countries in the point of view of Europe. And so people can be easily deported to these countries. And now they have decided seven additional countries for them, safe countries of origin. And for the people from these countries, this concept really has no concern to security. So if you come from a safe country, that doesn't mean that there's security. For example, for people which belongs to a minority group um, and who are discriminated in their countries of origin. In the past, these so-called safe countries, they constructed here in Germany a very effective deportation politics to do it to Albania, to Bosnia, to Herzegovina and other countries. In this current debate now, They talk about Moldavia, Tunisia, and other countries. And I think it's also a kind of doing politics in the relationship with these countries. Because if the European governments say Moldavia is a very good country, so we can deport people there, that means for these countries that they hope that they could have better economical relationships to Europe and that they will have advantages in the future. But I'm not sure that this hope will be, that there will be a perspective for these countries in an economical way to be nearer to Europe. I think it's a very hard game that Europe is playing with all these so-called safe countries. So this is an agreement between the EU and these countries, right? Yeah. Because uh-huh. just for listeners, so the politics in the EU... As far as I know before, was that if someone either does not want to apply for asylum or does not get asylum, then they can be uh, deported either to their country of origin or to the country from which they entered the EU. Yes. So that's why a lot of people got deported back to Serbia, for example. I just want to clarify because you said countries of origin and said Serbia, but actually they're not Serbian ethnic people, but uh, actually people from other countries, but which crossed into the EU through Serbia. Yeah, but Serbia uh, is no Dublin country. Yeah. Croatia, for example. If you come from Serbia to Croatia, you will be deported back to Croatia because this is your country of entering the European Union. You mentioned one uh, important thing at the beginning, the fact that Germany accepted refugees uh, at first was also very strongly motivated by this neoliberal desire to have people doing this work. And indeed, in a previous episode, when we discussed the situation at 20s, our guest pointed out that uh, this is a type of shadow army that the EU and especially Germany needs, but people don't want to interact with these people in day-to-day life. And it's interesting because, indeed, as you mentioned, you don't find this phenomenon in Eastern Europe, although it's slowly, slowly starting to appear. We see in Romania, for instance, workers being brought from Sri Lanka to work uh, jobs simply so they could pay them lower than they would pay local workers, while the local workers move and work to Germany 
Germany. And this point you made that it's a way of soft power to pressure these countries would explain it very well, because if you think of it this way, why would Germany realistically need this work when they could take cheap labor from marginal EU countries? They could take it from Romania, from Bulgaria. Do you know what other considerations they would be? Is it because since these are EU citizens, they could more easily apply for some of their rights for job center for something like that? I mean, because the way you describe it, it appears very intentional that we're creating a caste system with people becoming more and more precarious and having less and less rights the more you go away from Germany. Yes. So I think it's important to know that Germany is world export champion. So the industry in Germany is very important for the economical situation of Germany. And there, a lot of uh, precarious work is needed. And because of that, they tried to convince people from Eastern Europe to come here. If they are EU citizenship, it's easy for them to work here. But often it's not enough. So in all these cases, they need this human capital from other continents Because if they, the people are in a very precarious situation in their life, they are able to give everything <laughs> to make this shit work. And if people are in a stable situation, they will refuse it. And I think also for people from Eastern Europe, for them, the situation is not precarious enough because they can easily go to another country in, in Europe to look for a work there or to go back in their country. People from other continents with a refugee status, they cannot go to another country in Europe. They cannot choose where they have to live. They have to stay where they should stay. and They have to take their work what they find because their legal status depends on their work status. So I think this is really what you said. It's a class or a caste system in Germany where the economy is trying to separate different people and to create a situation here of, I think it's a kind of social concurrence. And if you have this concurrence, people are able to be very oppressed during this time because they have no other chance. <laughs> You mentioned that basically European workers can be Wanderarbeiter, Wander workers. So yeah, they can go from one country, one employer to the other. And I imagine the fact that these um, refugees, these asylum seekers, unless they came with their families, there's very little hope from them to actually bring their whole families here. It's far more difficult, right? Well, for EU workers, in theory, with the open borders policy, it should be easier for them if they find a semi-stable job to bring their whole family here. Yeah. And I think the more precarious the living situation is, the more people are able to take their function in a society. And this is a function which is integrated in the economical oppression. So people have no chance or no choice to take another perspective in their life. And for this, Refugees are very important for the German society. I'm not entirely sure how to uh, like integrate this information, but uh, yeah, I just want to insert somewhere that um, with my group here in uh, Timisoara, which is Western Romania, where I'm located uh, at, in, we've also been doing solidarity work with uh, people on the move, especially like in 2021, especially when there was a bigger spike of people moving to Romania. And uh, we are not that active anymore. We've kind of refocused really our efforts now. But uh, yeah, people know of cases of people who are deported back from Germany to Romania, for example, because Romania is also a Dublin country, especially if the person is a multiply marginalized person. We've helped trans people, queer couples in the past, neurodivergent people. Because there are some NGOs, but uh, they're not really equipped or interested to help people who are outside of some kind of normative frame for who their beneficiaries are. So yeah, I just wanted to insert this here that it's good to hear all this information also from you, Benedict, and to just share that. There are also other groups in other countries. Maybe you can make a list and uh, put it in the description of the episode. But I just wanted to put it here that it's good to keep these connections. And to know that there are also groups in countries in Eastern Europe 
which also can help if people get uh, deported there back. Yeah, that would be great. Because we often have the problem that if people are deported, then we lose the contact. We don't know how to support them there to give them contacts to people, to solidarity groups or other activists. And yeah, it, I think it would be very important to create a kind of European solidarity network from below. I think that would be very important for the future because we have to find ways to be able to act. And for the moment, I have the impression we are not really able to act. There are some things like, especially in Serbia, there are a lot of groups, but also in the former Yugoslav countries. There's this network, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's called the Border Violence Monitoring Network. It's, I think it's a federation of smaller groups, maybe, if I'm not mistaken. They are also active, like in, I think, Slovenia, Croatia. So there are people. I think we can share this information that we have. I think for us, well, I cannot speak for others, but for us, for example, the hardest part that we've been struggling with, especially when we had people who need like more sustained uh, support, was especially financial resources. So maybe that's a way to help if someone can. I don't think I have answered to your question about the camps at the your external border before. So what was unclear to me is are people again sent back to the, their countries of origin or I think now what you said was that the EU has an um, agreement with these countries to send refugees there, not necessarily to countries where they came from. Did I understand well or not so much? <laughs> yeah. So the plan at border procedures under detention conditions, what the EU discussed for the moment, it's a so-called admissibility check to take place in the future. So asylum applications from people seeking protection who have entered the country by safe third countries, that means countries out of Europe which are safe, <laughs> so then they have to go back to these safe countries to make their, their asylum procedure for Europe. This is a very crazy idea, I think. Europe, you mean EU here, right? Just to be clear. Yeah. And in order to be able to deport them, the criteria for when a state is considered safe enough are to be massively softened. Mm. So safe sub-regions will then suffice and even the Geneva Refugee Convention needs no apply. So that's very hard. That means particularly perfidious, even families with children will not be exempt from mandatory border procedure and detention. And in this European reform of the asylum system, there has nothing at all to do with the much-cited solidarity among EU states. So right-wing governments like Hungary have achieved that they do not have to take in refugees in the future but can also express their solidarity, so the kind of solidarity, with financial payments for partitioning the refugee defense. And the states at the EU's external border will continue to be left alone with even more violence against refugees for the purpose of deterrence looming. And I think the situation is very complicated in the EU if these ideas will be set uh, in reality in the next years. So for the moment, we have to check out because the European Parliament has to decide if they confirm these ideas. It's possible that they will change some details, but I'm not so hopeful that they will take it back. So we will see what will be the decision of the European Parliament in the next time. You did mention, focusing for the moment only on Germany, that this was a hot potato for many years and this discussion for the re legislation reform existed. But uh, just to mention, for those not familiar with German politics, if you look on paper now, everything should be fantastic in Germany. You have a coalition government from uh, social democrats, a liberal libertarianish party, and the Greens. But the reality 
for those following more closely is that these greens are a big disappointment for everybody and have very little of the left-wing tradition from which they started. At the same time, we have a fantastic growth of the far-right in Germany, support for far-right groups and the big far-right party is increasing at a surprising rate, all while the state cracks down on anti-fascist activists. So just in brief, could you describe the political situation behind uh, this legislation a bit for our listeners? You explained it very good. <laughs> so we have this situation that we have a liberal government for the moment before we had a conservative government in Germany. And now this liberal government is doing in practice what the conservative and the right parties before what they wanted to do. And now the liberals, if they are in the government, they are doing it because there is no, no opposition in the German parliament at the moment. The leftist party is very small and they have a lot of internal conflicts, so they are not really strong. And this is the only opposition. The other opposition, what we have in, in the German parliament, are the conservative and the extreme right parties. And because of this situation, this liberal government confirmed these EU ideas, which were before the ideas of the conservative part in Europe. And because of that, for example, the minister for the intern affairs and the minister of outside affairs both spoke of the only way to save the possible to save a Europe without internal border controls. So it's interesting because they say we have to change that these asylum procedures has to be outside of Europe and then we don't need any longer border controls inside of Europe. Because then we will have no refugees inside of Europe going from one country to one country. So we have no problem. And then there will be a liberty for all European citizens to travel from one country to, to another country without control. So this is very crazy logic. And yeah, the conservative party here for them, it's a big, uh, it's a big success that the liberal government is doing what they argumented before. And this is the shitty situation what we have in Germany for the moment. Of course, they basically dress it all, like you mentioned, in human rights talk and uh, fake care and stuff like that, right? I mean, few people, except for the far right, are openly saying what's happening. Yeah, and I think it's really a dream for conservative politics, politicians. It's a real dream to have this fortress of Europe in the future, which had been constructed by a liberal German government. That's, that's really, uh, it's like a joke in the, in the history. And before we had also the same situation at the end of the 90s in Germany, before also we had for a long time a conservative uh, government, and then they changed into a social democrat, so social liberal leftist government introduced here very hard and strict laws which creates poverty and a lot of problems and before the conservative government couldn't do all these reforms and now on the european level we can observe the same logic that liberal politics can create next steps or reform projects what wouldn't be possible with the conservative governments because in this case for the moment yeah what i said there's no opposition and if we will have all these camps outside of europe i think there will be no rule of law procedures in these camps at the external borders there are no lawyers only inadequate counseling opportunities so this would be the end of an european asylum And I think this is really the dream of the conservative and rightist politicians in Europe. And is there like within this governing coalition and in the EU, no opposition, no matter how small and marginal like uh, and impotent to this movement, are there no voices? Yeah. And because of that, I think it would be important uh, for us to organize citizen asylum all over in Europe to prevent deportations 
and to create a Europe-wide solidarity network because we have no other chance in the future, I think. We will not have the chance to fight for the rights of people by the legal way. At the moment, we have this very small chance, but we have this chance. But if all these laws are supremed, then we will have no legal chance to prevent people from inhumanitarian situations. Let me just add here that just the recent development relating to this fortress mentality of Europe, maybe some people know that uh, recently there was a vote whether to give Romania Schengen status or not, and Austria vetoed it exactly with the argument that because Romania's border controls are weak, letting Romania into the Schengen zone would actually weaken the borders of Europe, let many refugees in. So I think you're very right. I think this dynamic, this logic of, of fortress is in this period is becoming uh, stronger, actually. And uh, yeah, I think we need to resist it in a more organized way, I think, maybe regionally. Yeah, and we always have to repeat, why is Europe closing itself off? I think in the future there will be ungovernable zones worldwide. And here a fortress capitalism that raises the walls. And I think this will be the perspective for the future and that this fortress capitalism needs to protect itself against the rest of the world. And I think this is yeah, a horrible <laughs> uh, perspective for the future. And I think because of that, we have to scandalize it now and not in 10 years when time will be too late. <laughs> Could you sketch us very briefly a timetable for what happens? Do we have a date for these votes, for these discussions, or at least approximately when can we expect them the earliest or the latest to enter into effect in Germany, the EU, the member countries, etc.? The discussions about the reform took nine years in Europe. The last nine years, the different governments discussed in the EU, and now they have a first step of compromise and they have a first paper with these strategic goals. And yeah, so it's a first step for them. The next step will be that the Parliament, the European Parliament, has to decide that this reform should be set in practice. And then in the third step, the nations in Europe, the different governments have to change their national laws in order to make an application of this European law. So that will take some years. That's true. But I think that after every next step, it would be very difficult to go back. So if the European Parliament, for example, of the end of this year decides about this reform, because we will have a presidentship of, I think, Sweden, but I'm, I'm not sure, but one uh, country from north of Europe with this interest to have a quick solution. And yeah, I think after this, it would be very difficult to create a real resistance about it. But I have no real timetable when the next steps, because also the European institutions, they don't talk about a timetable because of all these conflicts inside of the EU about this topic. Okay, let's talk resistance then. Can you tell us a bit more in detail about the things you mentioned at the start, the type of resistance you organized and how it works? So maybe you could exchange a bit of experience and also tell us what you'd improve now, knowing how it worked in the last few years, how you operate this church resistance, and then move on to the things you said you'd want to be done, like the bigger networks, mass movements, etc. Yeah. So first, what you're doing here... So we protect people who are in danger to be deported. We protect them in churches. So we take the contact to different churches here in our region to convince them. It's not so easy to convince them that we try to convince them to take these people in their houses, which belongs to a parish, and to give people there a safe space that they couldn't be deported from there to another country. So during a Dublin process, the government here has six months 
to deport a person back to the first entrance country. So if a person is staying for longer than six months in a church here, after this, no deportation is possible. So what we are trying is to create this safe space during this six months. And after this time, then people can start their asylum process here in Germany. Is the six-month uh, rule, is that a law or is it uh, just kind of um, how things work in practice in Germany? Because I've heard this other times, but I was never sure whether it's uh, by law or it's just the practice. No, no, this is the law of Dublin. It's a European law. So the Dublin regulation is saying that every country has to deport people to the first entrance country during the first six months if the other Dublin country accepts to make the asylum process. Just for example, if somebody was registered in Croatia, so the person has to give his fingerprint there and then it's registered in the Eurodac. Eurodac is a digital system of the European governments or the countries where every person is registered from outside of Europe and every person who entered to Europe is registered with the fingerprints in this Eurodac. So if this person continue to come, for example, to Germany and to start an asylum procedure here, then they are looking here first in this Eurodac and then they see, oh, no, you are registered in Croatia, so you have to go back to Croatia. And then they have to ask the Croatian government if they accept to start the asylum procedure in Croatia. And if the government there answers, yes, we confirm that we are starting this process here, then this time of six months is starting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Then during this time, we try to protect the people that there's no deportation during the six months. And after this, they can start here the asylum process. But if somebody is going out of his camp, so we have this closed camp here. If somebody is going out of this camp, then they can make this time longer. Then they can give you 18 months, not six months, but 18 months. If somebody escaped from this asylum procedure, in these cases, normally we try to look for safe spaces outside of churches. So what we are calling a citizen asylum, because citizens are organizing asylum in these cases. And so we started a campaign about it five years ago that people declare in the public, yes, I welcome people with a Dublin problem in my home to protect them. and. If these 18 months are over, then people can start here their procedure. This is an illegal practice. So it's not allowed to take a person in your own home if this person has no legal status. But if a lot of people declare in the public that they are able to do it and that they are willing to do it, then there is no criminalization. And we had in the last years, there were no criminalization case. And in all these cases, people could organize citizenship asylum in their homes. It's not a very high number, so not very, very much people can do it. But some people could do it. And then after their 18-month Dublin time, they could start it here, the asylum process. I'll be joking a bit to lighten up the move because it's been pretty depressing so far. So basically, step one would be we could all go to the bishop of Archbishop of Cologne or Münster and tell them, hey, you have that giant parish that you use for something, build social housing there, and 2,000, 5,000 people can live there for six months, right? That would be step one. And then basically you're advising citizens to do a sort of civil disobedience and take these people for the next few months. But how does this look exactly? Because you say they declare it in the public. Is it more or less an individual as in they have to deal with the cops and whatever one uh, by one? Or uh, does the network take care of this? How does it look exactly in day-to-day -day life for the people engaging? Yeah. If people welcome people in their home, that's not their private problem. <laughs> 
So there are groups in some cities in Germany which are organizing this political campaign about um, citizen asylum. So they try to talk about it uh, in the media and to explain that this practice is a normal practice and not a criminal practice to explain why people are doing it because of this bad situation in a lot of Dublin countries and the repression of deportations. So to explain this and why they are organizing this practice. But what I said, up to today, there was no criminalization. So the police, normally they don't are looking to search the people to deport them. They are doing much more profiling in trains and train stations to look out where are people who could be illegalized people and then they are checking their legal status. But normally they don't look in private rooms if they can find people there. Sure, it's a very marginalized practice. If we would have 10,000 citizen asylums, and so I think then we would also have more problems. But for the moment, it's so marginalized that there's no repression on it. And for church asylum, it's the same. We have 140 church asylums here in Nordrhein-Westfalen, and it's not nothing, but yeah, we had 7,000 deportations last year. So if we have 300, 400 church asylums, it's also very minority. It's a good beginning. Just so people know exactly, what's the maximum risk by law in Germany that they're exposing themselves to if they're helping the people? I mean, because I doubt it's jail time, or is it? Or is it just a fine? It's not so easy to say, because it's not allowed to do it, but... If you receive no money, if you have no profit, no personal profit by it, it's difficult to say that it's a criminal act. If one day they try to criminalize people in this situation, I think people would have to pay, I don't know, 200, 500,000 euro. But to take them in jail, I think for the moment it would be difficult. It's different if you are doing it as a kind of business. Sure, then I think, yeah. But this is not our strategy that people earn money by organizing citizenship asylum. It's much more the opposite. People who are doing it, they also need a lot of money to do it because people in citizen asylum, they have no pocket money. They cannot work because if you're going to work, it's, then it's black work, illegal work. It's also dangerous. So people often are not going for work. And so they need money for their daily life. This needs a lot of money. And it's not the point that people are organizing it to earn money by it. And the uh, law, which you are very intelligently exploiting with the churches, can any church offer this or is it just the big two, the Catholics and the Protestants? Or can in theory mosques, synagogues, Rastafarian churches, anybody offer uh, safety to asylum seekers? For church asylum, there is no law in Germany. So there is no special law that's saying that churches have this privilege to do church asylum. But this year we have the birthday 40 years church asylum in Germany. The beginning was that some parishes just started it. They said, we don't accept any longer this situation of deportations. So we protect people in our houses. Then the government accepted it. But yeah, there is no legal point for doing church asylum. So in the past, we also had cases of criminalization of churches for doing church asylum. So in Bavaria and south of Germany, some priests were at the court because of it, because the police said it's illegal to protect illegalized people. And uh, if you help them, then you also are doing a criminal act. Mostly there is no repression, so it's just only in some cases. And here in Nordrhein Westfalen, we had no cases uh, of criminalization in the past. So that means that the protection is only by the public scandal if the police 
doesn't accept this church asylum. So sometimes police is entering into churches to take people out of the churches and to deport them. But then it's very important to make a media campaign and to scandalize it. This is the only reason why normally police keeps uh, a distance to the churches. So we know that in mosques, for example, often police is entering since 9-11-2001, and we know it. So there is no scandal if police doesn't accept these areas or these houses in kind of religious houses. So I think there would be a risk to do it, to make a mosque uh, asylum. But at the other hand, I think it's also daily practice that a lot of mosque communities are doing this, but they don't talk about it. And for synagogues, I think we have the problem that a lot of synagogue communities are very conservative, so they don't accept this kind of civil disobedience. If the European legislation we discussed would pass, how would it affect this type of action you described? What would be the hurdles or more or less you could still apply this tactic? Yeah. So the problem is in this reform, they said also for all these Dublin cases, they will give one year, not six months for the deportation. And if people are in submersion, then it would be for three years. So if this would be real, we have a problem that a lot of places will be occupied because if for the moment in church asylum it's six months one person so in one year we can protect two persons in one place and then in the future just one person in one year so this is a practical problem and at the other hand i think there will be less churches accept church asylum if it takes a much more time to make a successful church asylum and also for, for citizen asylum. I think it would be complicated to support one person during three years. That's a very, very long time. It's complicated to find people who will take this responsibility during three years. Yeah, then we have discussed about if people can change their places every five, six, eight months that they go then after this to another place or something like that. But we need creative solutions uh, in future for this. And if I understood correctly, basically the moment the asylum seeker would leave the person's house, it should also be done in a very discreet manner, right? Because that moment the police could uh, wait for them and arrest them on the spot, right? While moving between houses. Yeah, this is always the danger because if somebody is in civil asylum, then it's not an official status. So during this time, every time if you are going to the next supermarket or I don't know what, you could be arrested all the time. And we also had these cases in the past that people were arrested. Yeah, sure. So moving from this to conclude on a can hopeful note, do you want to talk a bit about these larger networks that we discussed that you want to see both mutual aid ones and ones to oppose the big legislation, how you think they could arrange themselves and how they could work and how they should look both locally and abroad? It's difficult to say. <laughs> I think what we need is to work much better together to invent creative solutions about protecting people, about undermining the fortress Europe. So I think we cannot only create local practices. We need to create inter-European strategies, how people can enter to European Union, how people can stay in the country which they choose how people can be protected from deportations, how people can fight against this camp politics. This racist camp accommodation is also really a problem because they are disciplinary institutions. Normally, there's no struggle about the, the conditions in these camps because people are so stressed all the time and they are not organizing themselves together. So I think we have to ask these questions, how we can support struggles from below, which are going further than just fighting against some laws or some inequalities, some injustices. 
but much more have to take the perspective that to give migrants a right and justice situation, we have to create an anti-capitalist uh, fight because the problem is the situation of capitalist fortress politics in Europe and the protection of the European welfare against the rest of the world. And I think we have to attack this. And this is the only chance to fight for a worldwide liberty of movement. And we cannot do it just only on a local level to have some more better solutions for some people. It's not wrong, but I think we really have to change our point of view to consider this anti-racist fights in Europe as a fight against our capitalist system. It's big words, I know, but I think we have really to take this perspective, not only to stay only in a reformist fight without a real perspective or a, a real horizon, which is further than only the situation of some refugees. So you know what I mean. Yeah, thank you. Normally I would follow up with how can somebody get involved, but I think right now it's self-evident. Contact your local group, read about it, join our group for refugees' rights. Maybe you have some idea in case somebody, we have this mythical listener who's stable middle class with a lot of time and income from an area with no asylum seekers locally and no big leftist groups. How could they help financially or spread uh, awareness? Where should they direct their attention? Yeah, but I think we have to create a struggle everywhere. <laughs> also in a very comfortable middle class situation where no migrants are. I think we really have to criticize from the racing. We have to criticize from the roots our racist system in Europe and to criticize it as a, a capitalist system where human rights are not able for everyone. And this is the problem we have. So we have to smash this system, which is an injustice system. So we have to fight everywhere. I would also add that uh, I think when you have a systemic analysis, you understand that the same kind of border regime, which is constructed in order to segregate and racialize people and permit capital to flow at the same time, uh, is also the same system that is producing the climate apocalypse that is coming, which is also producing the cost of living crisis, which I think affects even middle class people now in many countries. So I think uh, capitalism it really is like a, this kind of uh, cancer, which uh, is metastasizing in every area. I do agree that we need to have this kind of systemic view that um, these problems are too big to be approached like from a reformist uh, frame. That to hope that you can just fix one minor thing, like, you know, how borders are regulated. I think that's a dream. We need to replace it completely with something different. Yeah. Benedict, thank you for your time. It was a really great discussion. We'll add a few more links in the description below the episode. Thank you once more for your time and hope to talk to you again sometime. Thanks for your invitation. And I'm very interesting to create a network with you in other countries in Europe. Mm -hmm. Let's keep in touch. We haven't been so active in the last uh, year on migrant issues, but uh, before that, people from this uh, network that I mentioned, they were trying to reach out and contact us also if you want to join the network and to collaborate. So I think uh, there is an opening or a, how do you say, it, to connect from many people. So yeah. Great. Loves. Children of the night, what music they make. That's all for now. Since the situation appears to be taking new complex and tragic twists and turns at every moment, check out the links in the description below if you want to stay informed, find out more, or more importantly, find out how you can get involved and fight back. The art for this episode was created by Saad Shahriar of Postcolonial Cafe and Unrest Radio. We'll probably have uh, Saad on at one point to discuss a thing or two in a future episode. The song we've used for the theme and for the closing uh, segment is uh, Comunitate by Sofia Zadar. Check out uh, her work in the links below. 
Of course, we've used sound bites here and there from Kevin McLeod's website, like everybody on the internet does. Many thanks for listening, and don't lose hope. See you next time. I spread out my arms and reach for you. When we go further